You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Uh, you can find the Bible reading on the back of the hymn sheet if you want to read along with me. And we're just going to read up to verse 17 today. To the church in Ephesus, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you do have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. To the church in Smyrna, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. To the church in Pergamum. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, And I will give him a white stone 
with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good evening, everybody, and it is great to be with you. Uh, as Paul said, it has been a few weeks since I've been here. Last week, I was uh, officiating at a wedding. Uh, the week before, I was in Brisbane, uh, and uh, a couple of weeks before that, I was on the Gold Coast. Uh, not holidaying, I should, should make that clear. Uh, I was, uh, City on a Hill is a movement of churches, eight different churches around Australia, and I was visiting those churches uh, over those time and, and helping them out. So today, I wanted to go through Revelation chapter 2. Uh, our preacher is, was from Geelong, uh, and he was going to come in today, and I was looking forward to that. Uh, but he actually got COVID on like Tuesday or Wednesday, and so we had to kind of rejig our schedule a little bit. I want to make sure that he can come back next week and do the same sermon because he's already started working on it. Uh, so I thought, why don't we do uh, Revelation? We looked at this a couple of years ago, and I wanted to find something that was kind of self-contained that would be useful for us today. So how about we pray as we get into it? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have so much to teach us, help us to learn with all humility and joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, what makes a good church? What makes a healthy church? It's the kind of question I often ask as a a pastor leading a church. I need to think about what makes a good church and how are we going as a church? Uh, I ask that because these two passages in Revelation 2 and 3 are really a, a health checkup for the church. These are the churches of the seven churches of Revelation, the seven churches of Asia Minor, what we know as Turkey, uh, the cities of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia and Laodicea. Uh, These are the churches that have been set up at the end of the first century, some of the first Christian churches in the world. And here Jesus is giving them a, a kind of a health checkup. He's saying, here's what I see in your church and here's what I'm happy about. Here's what I want to see you working on and to change. This is his message for the churches. These are his churches. He loves them. He's laid down his life for them. He cares about them. And now he has these things to say to them. And he wants us to listen to them as well. Chapter 2, verse 7, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He invites us to listen in. And so tonight we're going to look at what Jesus has to say. I think we're going to see three types of churches as we go through this. We see churches that look healthy but are actually sick. And then we see churches that are healthy but are starting to get sick. And then we see churches that look sick but are actually healthy. And uh, if you've got a Bible, make sure you, we're going to jump around a little bit in these two chapters. Uh, You can also find it on the website if you've got that. But first of all, let's look at these churches that look healthy, but are actually sick. Uh, you might have heard of those stories of someone who, who seems really healthy and then just suddenly gets really sick or, or drops dead, and, and you wonder what on earth has happened. It's such a shock. But of course, there's always a reason. There's something inside that person that, that's causes. Maybe they've got some heart defect that they didn't realise, and they look well, but they actually aren't. It's the same sometimes with church health. A church might look good, might look healthy on the outside, but actually be sick. There's something behind the scenes or under the surface that paints a different picture. We see two churches like that in these chapters, the churches of Sardis and Laodicea. They look healthy, but actually they're sick. They think that they're doing great, but they're not. So Jesus says about the church in Sardis, chapter 3, verse 1, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. 
And then he says to the church at Laodicea, you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. In fact, he also says to the church at Laodicea, 3 verse 15, I know your works, you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, it's always a bit depressing that my name is associated with something so negative uh, as this. Uh, what Jesus is saying here is he's describing them as lukewarm. And, and, and when we hear that, we might think of them, first of all, is that just someone who blows hot and cold? Perhaps the church here has, has seasons where they're really great and other seasons where they're not so great, where they're a little bit off. But actually, it's worse than that. See, there's actually no such thing as a lukewarm Christian. Either you serve God all the time or none of the time. There's no sort of halfway. You're either all in or you're all out. And so in describing these people as lukewarm, Jesus is actually saying that they've become useless. They've lost their identity. And he's actually using a metaphor to describe this uh, that's based on where they are. See, Laodicea was one of three cities that were on the banks of the river Lycus. Uh, above them, further upstream, was Herapolis, uh, and it was famous for its healing hot springs. You'd go there and you'd sit in these hot springs, really wonderful. And then below them was a town called Colossae, and that was known uh, as the water kind of went down the stream, it would reach down to Colossae and it would be beautiful and cold and fresh and reviving. So you had these hot springs up here and these beautiful cold springs down there. In the middle you had Laodicea and when the water was kind of flowing down here, it got to Laodicea and it was lukewarm. It was kind of good for nothing. It wasn't healing like those hot springs, it wasn't reviving like the cold water, it was kind of useless. And Jesus is saying that about this church. They kind of almost disgust him. 3 verse 16, I will spit you out of my mouth. What's happening here? Well, it's likely that they've been absorbed into the culture. The culture around the church has become the culture of the church. You see, the city of Laodicea was wealthy and self-sufficient and fiercely independent. In fact, in AD 61, there was a great earthquake that wrecked the city and the Roman emperor offered funds to help the city rebuild, but they refused it because they believed that they could fix it themselves. Don't hear of any governments not taking handouts now. But it seems like the church has picked up on these values. 3 verse 17, you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. But they don't realise that they're wretched and pitiable and poor. Just like the city, they've become too self-sufficient. They need to learn to ask, to be humble. It's a similar story with Sardis as well. Sardis was a very prosperous city, good location, fertile, uh, good trade routes. The city was very wealthy and so it was confident and secure. Uh, it was surrounded on three sides by cliffs and so the people came to believe that they were impregnable, that no one could take them. Uh, well, several centuries before this, the Persian king Cyrus had actually captured the city by surprising the people by coming up the cliffs. It seems that Jesus is picking up that theme here in this letter. You see, the church, just like the city, was overconfident and self-assured. They feel impregnable, but they're actually not. He says that they're asleep. 
And if they do not wake up, verse, verse 3 of chapter 3, I will come like a thief and you will not know what hour I will come against you. He's warning them against their complacency, against their self-sufficiency. So you see here, there's the culture around these churches has become the culture of the churches. That's what can happen with churches. Uh, we're supposed to be different to the world around us. We're actually supposed to be uh, unique and transforming the culture around us, but too often the culture outside becomes the culture inside in a way that we just kind of sub are submerged into it. We just become part of it. And so it's worth thinking about what are the culture, the, the subtle vibes, what's the culture of our city? And what are the values around us? Some of which might be great, but others we might need to be careful of. Until recently, I think I would have said that the culture of our city was about self-confidence and self-satisfaction. We were known as the world's most livable city, and we give any number of reasons for that. Our amazing sporting venues, our fancy bars, our classic architecture, our predictable weather. Uh, we were also kind of saw ourselves as, as a little bit classy. You know, we had the, the Paris end of Collins Street. I think the last two years has kind of knocked our confidence a little bit, but there's still other cultural values around us. We, are, we just love comfort. We love the thought of making sure that we're in the most comfortable position we can be in. And if anything, the last two years has only accentuated that. We've kind of come into ourselves more and more, making sure that what we have is comfortable and that, every, that we're satisfied. Alternatively, you might consider how we can easily become cynical or dismissive, anti-authoritarian, whatever it is, the, the values around us, we have to discern them. We have to consider what we should accept and embrace and what we need to be careful of. We need to make sure that the culture around us doesn't just become the culture inside the church. So there are some churches that look healthy but are actually sick. And then secondly, we see churches that are healthy but are showing signs of getting sick. They've got symptoms. And there's three churches that fit into that category here, Pergamum, Thyatira, and Ephesus. The church of Pergamum had uh, a lot of good things going for it. They were a determined church who were holding on to the truth even though they were copying some opposition. In verse 13, Jesus says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. This is probably a reference to the imperial cult. Uh, the emperors of Rome had made themselves like gods and they demanded worship. And Pergamon was one of the key centres for this. This was one of the, the places where the imperial cult was strongest of all. And so the pressure on Christians to be a part of that would have been immense. But despite that, these Christians, the church, is resolute even to the point of suffering. Verse 13, you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you. Like it's even gotten to the point of violence and they're still holding resolute. They're serious about their faith. And yet even these guys are starting to waver. 2 verse 14, I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols and practice sexual immorality. There's, they're clearly listening to some sort of false teaching that invites them to compromise. 
Something similar is happening in Thyatira. Again, this is a strong church. 2 verse 19, I know your works, Jesus says, your love and faith and service and patient endurance. They're a good church again. But they also have signs of sickness. They've also tolerated false teaching. 2 verse 20, I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Uh, there wasn't actually a Jezebel in the church. It's a reference to a, a character in the Old Testament. You might remember we met Jezebel in our King series last year and she was a woman who uh, turned God's people away to invited them to compromise and to go along with what all the other nations said. So both of these churches are listening to false teaching and they're being led away because false teaching leads to compromise and then leads to disaster. And it's interesting to see the kind of specifics of it because you actually see both the uh, that compromise tends to come either from a desire for self-preservation or because we're seduced by the attraction of sin. See, they mention, for instance, that they are eating food sacrificed to idols. Here we see uh, an act of self-preservation. To get a job in these Roman cities, uh, you had to be part of a trade guild. It was like a trade union. If you wanted to work somewhere, you had to be part of this guild. And so... Uh, the problem was, though, if you're a Christian, you're in this really difficult position. See, you'd want to be a part of these guilds so you could work, but to be part of the guild meant you also had to worship the idols. When you'd gather together as a guild, as a trade union, you would all worship the idols. And so as a Christian, you're in this horrible position. You need work to provide for your family and all of that, but if you do that, you're going to have to compromise on your values. And so the Christians were in this horrible position where they were kind of caught between these two stools and what would they do? And here it seems like there are teachers emerging to say, no, no, it's fine. You can just do this. It doesn't matter. God won't mind when actually he does. We may face a similar predicament. We may face difficult situations where to stand for Jesus, to stand with Jesus, will cost us. It might cost us... Uh, being scorned by people we care about. We might lose friends if we stand up for what's right. We might even lose our job or lose money because we just can't go along with something. We're tempted to just fall into self-preservation. But it's not just that. We also see that the false teachers were encouraging uh, people to practice sexual immorality and that points to how sin can seduce people. The culture around us has all kinds of sins out there that we might be drawn to. We find them intoxicating. And there is lots of people out there who might encourage us to do it, even in the church. Often there are teachers within the church who will say it's okay to compromise, that God's values have changed. We don't need to worry about what the Bible says on certain things. But do you want to, I want you to see how that happens. See, in 2 Timothy 4, uh, the Apostle Paul says, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. I want you to see the order here. See, often we think of false teaching as the responsibility purely of the teacher. 
There's false prophets, there's false teachers who are teaching something that's incorrect. And certainly they bear responsibility. But you see here that it also comes from the desires of the people. There are false teachers out there because people want them. They'll go and look for them. They'll accumulate for themselves, teachers, to suit their own passions. They know what they want to hear and so they'll go to the people who will say that to them. They have itching ears. They want to scratch that. They want to hear things that they love. So they'll turn away from the truth and wander off into myths. Are we going to do that? Are we going to be people who wander off into that? Here we're faced with, we have this this, uh, deposit of God's truth. Will I, will our preachers present it faithfully? Will we, as listeners, receive that? Or will we wander off and accumulate other teachers who'll say what will suit our own passions? There are churches that can look healthy but are getting sick because they're starting to veer away and listen to the wrong things. But also we see here that even if you hold the truth, that's still not enough as we see with the church at Ephesus. The church at Ephesus was kind of like an all-star church, had an incredible history. The Apostle Paul had done some wonderful work there. They got their own letter. He trained up Timothy to take on the leadership of the church. The Apostle John was part of this church as well. Like They had an amazing preaching roster. And Jesus has much to commend them on here. Chapter 2, verse 2, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. This is, there's lots of signs here of a healthy church. They're patient, they're consistent, they have not grown weary. They detest evil, they cannot bear with those who are evil. They're spiritually sensitive and insightful. They understand who's a true apostle and who's not. They protect doctrine. They hate the works of the Nicolaitans, who were false teachers. They're resolute even when they're attacked. They are enduring patiently. This is a good church. And Jesus wants to affirm all of that. And yet, verse 4, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. They've got all of this great stuff about them, but there's something missing. They've lost that love. I think what he's saying here is that they've lost their joy. This is a church that knows the truth but has lost the wonder of it. They've been taught the truth by Paul, by Timothy, by John. They've got all of this truth, but they've forgotten how amazing it is. This is a warning for us. There's lots of uh, great teaching churches in Australia. Uh, Despite our small size, there's been some extraordinary uh, people, leaders who've had an amazing impact in Australia, people like uh, Leon Morris or Peter Adam or Philip Jensen, men who've taught the gospel, taught the truth for years. They've had a great impact. Here in in our own church, We're passionate about teaching the truth. That's our big goal. You come here, 
You have to sit through a 35, 40-minute sermon every week because we love the truth. We want to teach it. But are we feeling the truth? Are we, doing, are we learning it and understanding it and then responding to it? Is it moving not just our minds but our hearts and our hands? Have we remembered, are we still enraptured by the gospel? I remember the first moment I truly understood the gospel. I, I just couldn't, I couldn't get over it. I couldn't believe it in the best way. I believed it, but it seemed unbelievable because it was so good. I had the joy. But do we still have that joy? When's the last time you felt that joy? When's the last time you read the Bible just because you wanted to know God more? And when's the last time you just had a moment as you were thinking about God or praying or singing a song or something like, wow, that God is really wonderful. When's the last time you have tasted the wonder of the truth? God invites us not just to learn but to love, to keep holding on to that, to keep uh, discovering new things about our great God. A healthy church is one where the truth is not just taught, but it's loved. It changes. Let's be that kind of church. And then thirdly, we see churches that look sick, but are actually healthy. Uh, and there's two of them that I'll pick out here, Smyrna and Philadelphia. And what's fascinating is that in these seven letters to the churches, there's a critique for every church except these two. Jesus has only praise and encouragement for the churches of Smyrna and Philadelphia. And this is kind of fascinating because they don't look like they're that impressive. To the church at Smyrna, he writes, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. To the church of Philadelphia, he writes, I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. And so these churches look weak, they look sick, but they're strong enough to hold fast, and that's what Jesus loves. Smyrna was a beautiful and a, a rich city, uh, reputed to be the birthplace of the Greek poet Homer. There were as many as 250,000 people living there. It was known as the glory of Asia. Uh, it was dedicated to the imperial cult, uh, but there was not, and, and so there would have been a lot of pressure on God's people to to conform to that, but it wasn't just the Romans. We're told that the Jews in the city were slandering them, basically dobbing them into the authorities out of sheer jealousy and hatred. There were similar challenges in Philadelphia, just like in Smyrna. Uh, the Jews are hounding the Christians. They're told about, we're told about the synagogue of Satan, which has apparently shut them out and trying to sideline them, and yet they're standing firm. 3 verse 8, you've kept my word and have not denied my name. They just refuse to compromise. They, they're just, they're resolute. And that's what Jesus loves. And Jesus still loves churches that might look weak, but actually have the fundamentals. They're holding on to Jesus. See, there's some wonderful churches around the world right now. And, and churches that, that look healthy and are healthy. You know, churches where God's word is proclaimed every Sunday, people respond, people are coming to faith, there's conversions, there's 
wonderful things. There's, there's people uh, whose podcasts have incredible reach and influence. We want to celebrate all of that. And yet the best churches might actually be the ones you've never heard of and never will. The underground churches in China, resisting the oppression of a government, a government determined to destroy them. Or the house churches in Iran, where more people have come to faith in the last 20 years than in the 1,300 years that preceded it. I remember going to a conference, a church conference in Florida a few years ago, and there was lots of really impressive leaders, really great people, and, and lots of people aspiring to be great leaders as well, you know, like walking around with uh, hipster jeans and moleskin notebooks and stuff and wanting to be on the next bestseller list for Zondervan or whatever. But there was one guy there who probably got missed. He wasn't asked to do a talk, didn't lead a seminar, a bloke from India who I was told his eldership team had been killed by Hindu extremists just a month or two beforehand. There was something in that man that showed the health of that church. That's a church where they were so resolute in their faith that they were even willing to die for it. They look weak. We never hear about them. They're not on the hot list of the podcast for religion and spirituality. They don't have a fancy website. But they have a deep and profound faith, a resolute faith, where they're willing even to die for Jesus. And if you're willing to die for Jesus, then you're willing to live for him. And that's what's so glorious. And that's what God invites us to be. There's lots of things that we can be thankful for and encouraged by in our church. God has been incredibly kind to us. It's 15 years of City on a Hill this year, eight years here at Melbourne West, eight church plants, another two in the works. Apparently there's something like 4,000 people across our services at Easter. It's been about 250 baptisms over that time, about 40 here. Lots of people coming to faith, learning, growing, wonderful stories, beautiful stories, and we are thankful for all of that. But that's not ultimately, it's not just about stats. The true test of our health as a church will be, are we willing to live and even die for Jesus? Do we have a faith that's that strong that it will persevere and stand firm? Do we hold on to the joy and the love that we had, our first love? Will it be our last love, our enduring and forever love? See, we may never face the ultimate test. We might not have to die for Jesus. It's almost certain that we won't have to do that. But we have the opportunity to live for him. And Jesus wants to see if we'll do that in the way that we work, in the way that we play, in the way that we approach relationships and money, in the way that we care for people and the choices that we make. Will we live for Jesus? So how do we do that? Like, that's the kind of health we all want. That's a healthy church. That's the faith that we want. So how do we get like this? Well, three last observations from this passage. First of all, we need to see who Jesus is. We need to understand who he is and to look at that and perceive and base our lives on that. 
So you're right through these letters, we see Jesus telling the people, these churches, who he is. 2 verse 8, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. To the church of Thyatira, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. To the church of Philadelphia, the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut. To the church of Laodicea, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation, and so on. And each phrase, each title is telling us something about Jesus. He's the first and the last, the one who spans the full length of history. He's the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the one who speaks and then it happens, the one who speaks and so it is, the true one on whom we can stand. And Jesus is telling these churches all of these things, he's telling us these things because he wants us to trust him. He wants us to see his beauty, his greatness, his power, and to trust him, to see who Jesus is. And then secondly, to trust what Jesus has done. 3 verse 21, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. The word conquering, it's war language. Because the reality is there's this spiritual war that the world has been engaged in. Jesus created all things. He is the one in whom we live and move and have our being. He is the first and the last, the one for whom all things were created. And yet humanity has defied him. We as humans rebel against God. We take up arms against God. We resist him. And so Jesus came to resolve that conflict. To do that, he had to humble himself, to make himself nothing. Even, it looked like, he had succumbed to the great war himself when he died on the cross. But of course, Jesus was dying on the cross to make up for our rebellion, to reconcile us to God. Colossians 2, you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So all of our sin, Jesus took on all of that and nailed it to the cross for us. And verse 15, in so doing, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The moment that looked like Christ's defeat, God's defeat, was actually God's great victory, where he overcame, where he conquered our sin, our rebellion, and brought us back to him and gave us new life. See what Jesus is, who Jesus is, and see what Jesus has done, that he has done everything to give you, to give me new life. And then thirdly, look for what Jesus will give us. Jesus says that anyone willing to persevere, to even die for him, is a conqueror and he has great promises for them. That's what you see through these passages. 2 verse 7, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life. They will enjoy eternal life. 3 verse 5, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. They'll be pure, they'll be accepted. And I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. If you're willing to stand for Jesus, if that's what you're committed to, if you'll humbly follow him, then Jesus will always stand with you. 
the one who conquers 3 verse 12, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. If you follow Jesus, if you commit yourself to that, you'll be part of this glorious work that he is doing through his people, through the church. God wants us to be a healthy church because he wants to do glorious things with us and through us and in us. And it all hinges on seeing who Jesus is and his glory. See, in one sense, when we read these passages, it could be quite overwhelming. Uh, We kind of might imagine that a healthy church is just a happy church that's just going for it and there's lots of exciting ministries and all of those things. That might be the case. But the reality is also a healthy church is a church that's resolute because the Christian life can be really difficult because the, the world opposes the Christian. In the book of Timothy, it says that anyone who tries to live for God will be persecuted. That's not a great selling point. But a healthy Christian is someone who's willing to persevere even in the midst of that. But at the end of it, they do that because there is a joy set before them, the joy of Jesus. See, Jesus has to be worth it. He has to be worth the sacrifice. He has to be worth the scorn, even the persecution. And here we're told he is. He conquered death. And so he has gifts to give. He can call his people to stand firm, even through death, because he's standing on the other side, ready to welcome us home. And it's these kinds of promises that have sustained God's people through every age. Just to finish up, when we read this passage, we see one church that's about to face a great trial, the church of Smyrna. Their suffering has begun, but it's actually going to get worse. 2 verse 10, Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. He's saying that there is a a difficult time coming. It's going to be limited. It's 10 days is symbolic of a certain amount of time, but it's limited. But it's going to come. And then he says to them, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Hold on. It's going to be limited. It's going to be hard. But hold on. It's likely that one of the people who read this letter to the church at Smyrna was a bloke called Polycarp. He was a remarkable man, discipled by the Apostle John. Uh, He would become a great leader in the church himself, becoming the Bishop of Smyrna in 115 AD. But the persecution that's warned about in this letter would come to him. He was eventually arrested for refusing to worship the Emperor. He was told to renounce Jesus on pain of death But he replied, 80 and 6 years I have served him and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and saviour? As he died, he said, I bless you, Father, for judging me worthy of this hour so that in the company of the martyrs I may share the cup of Christ. He received the crown of life. But that's a healthy Christian. And as Christians like that, that make a healthy church. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this letter, these letters to the churches. We thank you for what they have to say to us. 
I feel a little bit remote. Yeah, we just love the fact that you care enough about your church to say these things, to teach us, to train us, or to help us to listen and to, to see ourselves in this passage. Lord, may we be a healthy church that comes to know Jesus and finds the love in Jesus. May we never forget the joy of salvation. May we be enraptured by your grace. May we not lose that. May we uh, seek to protect the truth, commit ourselves to that, but never uh, lose sight of the wonder in it. Lord, help us to be resolute, to persevere, to be strong, but also just to be happy, to be happy in you, to be happy as your people. Thank you, Jesus, that you've gone ahead of us, that you've given us life and you want to lead us through it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.